mentioned to Paula the other day, I was talking with her on the phone. Uh, I called, you know, it's Trinity, but I said, holy shit, three times out loud reading this book. Uh, and I, I kept telling my wife, like, holy crap, holy crap. Like, you, you got to read this. Like, this is insane. Um, and, and we were talking about how, you know, uh, you guys have done some interviews and some people haven't read it. I've read it. And I'm blown away by by this story. And one first, uh, Paula, how did you come across the story? Because this, you came across this while you were on vacation. Is that correct? No, no. I was I was living in in Europe. I lived in Italy from 1992 to 2007 when I came back to the United States. And I had read in in the Socorro Gazette or the Socorro Journal about two little Indian boys that had seen. Uh, a UFO crash in 1945. They called them little Indian boys. They were on horses. And I read uh, about this case. And my first thought was, why, why aren't people jumping on it? Why aren't my colleagues down there? Why aren't they looking at this? Because those guys were still alive, you know? So when I came back to the United States, um, by, you know, everything's a coincidence in my life. So by coincidence, I got a call from the son of the pilot that overflew that that uh, that site, uh, William Brophy. And uh, by the way, um, Jacques, he just wrote the other day, uh, and uh, I I knew some of these people would come out of the woodwork. And he just wrote the other day, so I'm so grateful to him because he's the one that said, "My father, that was the last recovery he did." And those weren't Indian boys. Those are two little Hispanic boys. And he told me their names and he gave me the telephone number of Remy Baca. So then uh, when I came, moved back to the United States, when this happened in 2009, I began a relationship with Remy Baca. And then uh, and I was able to fly to Gig Harbor, Washington, question him, and then question Jose, who was the nine-year-old. And that is what what Jacques looked at for transcripts. And it's a good thing I did that, Jason, because Remy Baca then died in 2013. So it's like very difficult. I got there late. If I had gotten there 10 years before, I could have found a lot more people. Yeah. Well, the fact that you even have three witnesses that you've got testimony from is amazing. I don't know if the... You know, Trinity has so many uh, different uh, themes throughout the book, you know, not only the witnesses, but the entities, you know, there were three, like there's just, I thought the title fit the book anyways. But uh, so you get hold of this story, you get hold of these witnesses. How did you and Jacques then sort of merge on this project? Well, let Jacques talk about that. <laughs> that was a coincidence too. So Jacques, tell them how you met so me. <laughs> you know, for a long time, um, and I've been accused of that, and I've been accused, you know, um, truthfully for not paying enough attention to crashes. Of course, I knew about Roswell. I never went to Roswell. I knew about the other cases. I cataloged them. And then I never thought that uh, there was much that I could contribute to that because and I discussed it, used to discuss it with Dr. Heineck. And yes, those stories were fantastic. It, but the, there was no evidence, no credible evidence that you could actually take to a lab. In fact, when, um, uh, the, when during the, the, the Rockefeller discussions under 
uh, Professor Sturak at Pocantico, and uh, the, the book has been published since then, the, the scientists that had been convened to look at all the data said, fascinating, I'm glad you're doing this. This is good science, but again, uh, you haven't given me something I can take to the lab. So um, I thought, you know, there are competent people looking at this. There is nothing that I can add until there is some data. Then um, through some, some friends and uh, uh, through uh, Dr. Pasolka and her, her work on the religious aspect and, and the credibility of the subject, um, she reports uh, having uh, been part of a, of a, a dig essentially in New Mexico with two scientists, uh, one of whom is at Stanford, uh, he was a friend of mine, where they did find some, some uh, metal that they could recover that could be tested. Turns out to be aluminum, which is not very exotic, but at least that's a part of the thing that can give credibility to the rest of the story, at least. So, so I, I became interested in this. And um, my friend Ron Brinkley, whose family is from New Mexico, uh, even from dating to before the war, before World War II, uh, had large ranches there, uh, had been very interested in this. And he introduced me to the, uh, his favorite restaurant of the, uh, the Owl um, Bar and Cafe, where many of the scientists in the, in the, in the Manhattan Project were having lunch or dinner and told me that there was a story that he wanted to introduce me to in that area that, uh, that I really should look at. Unfortunately, he died uh, before I could really advance that, but that had intrigued me enough that knowing that uh, Paula had done work there, I um, found someone who knew her and was willing to give me an introduction to her. And that's how we started communicating, uh, me coming more from the hard science and, uh, you know, instrumentation and, and uh, uh, you know, actual data um, processing side and discovering that she had already, she was four or five years ahead of me because she had already um, interviewed the two primary witnesses and the rest of the information was just waiting to be reassembled and, and studied. This plays out like a movie, absolutely. Like the way that I, you know, the way that it reads, like I could totally see this being done into a movie. I mean, the continuity of the witnesses uh, from beginning to end. I mean, they were there the entire time. You have the whole story. And that, that is a turning point. The fact that the, the obvious question that the ufologists have been asking, which is a, a valid question about the case, is, look, we do, we... They say we don't think it's a valid case because it's never reported anywhere and the witnesses never spoke. Well, the witnesses never spoke until, until Paula took the trouble of you know, tracking them down and getting their story. But they had very good reasons to stay silent for 70 years. And um, the people who recovered the 
Kraft had very interesting reasons for not talking to anybody ever. And um, if it wasn't for the fact that those two kids were very bright, that they were, it was their land. So they were there when it happened. And we know, and they were there after it happened for a whole week, except for one day. And uh, the, the, the story is just so solid that you just can't deny, deny it. And then once you get over the threshold, then you, you discover this entire landscape of, you know, of um, both material things, personal things that happened to them, psychic experiences that they had, and, and the, just the impact on that community. And that's, that's an entire other world. Yeah. And, and you were mentioning, too, in the book, uh, more towards the end of the book, how uh, a part about you and, and Paola being having lunch or dinner. And uh, Paola, you're saying how like this is like so close to the heart for you. Like this is, you know, one of the cases that you've worked on that's like the closest uh, to you. And it's really because of the of the people as well that you've got to know throughout this whole process. <laughs> No, Jacques is a lot like me. He's a people person and he's met Jose. He's met Jose. And I, for the last 10 years, I mean, nine years, uh, have had a relationship with Jose and that he's he's a, a credible, honest ex. He was an ex-state trooper in, 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 uh, in California who was shot twice. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> in the Korean War when he was about 18 and once when he was in the middle of it, you know, looking at a drug situation where people were trying to <clears throat> smuggle drugs. He's, he's a solid guy. <coughs> so in my heart, I want to tell his story. And I, I found somebody like Jacques, who is also a people person who wants to tell the story too, because I was working on it by myself, Jason, for five years, I brought the whole world down there. I am sorry, but I brought Mufan down there. I brought Jaime Maussan. I brought all kinds of people Just down there. Bane. And they would yeah. walk away. <laughs> yeah, and they would walk away thinking, nice, nice guy, nice situation. When I brought Jacques there, <clears throat> and we've been going there for four years, nonstop, at least twice a year, he realized the importance of this case. Otherwise, this case would not have come out at all. And so, uh, and but he also has a, um, a loyalty to Jose and Sabrina, like I have. I mean, these are people we really right. care about. And so, um, and Jose is thrilled because now he can tell his children and grandchildren about what happened in his life. So there is that side of humanity, people that you have to deal with. This is not right about writing a book or, you know, uh, fame or fortune or anything. This is yeah. history. And so for Jose, he's, he's vindicated. He's finally, this is, they're telling the story of something that really happened. And these weren't like your average nine and seven-year-olds. These are nine, seven-year-olds from 1945, like yes. as an example i can't get my nine-year-old to flush the toilet sometimes you know yet these ones you know were handling the whole ranch and and taking care of things and repairs and very intelligent um very smart too in their actions towards this i was quite impressed well, people were growing up quickly then you know um 
there were people dying in Europe. There were people dying in Japan. There were families that were torn apart by all this. There was a feeling, especially in that, you know, so close to ground zero that um, you had to keep, if you saw something that was a little bit unusual, um, you you had to keep your mouth shut because that, um, you know, that there was a war going on and it was terrible. And, and when the shooting war finished, uh, the you know, the Cold War started, and then there was suspicion among Americans, not just suspicion of you know the Germans, the Japanese, the Russians, and so on, but there was suspicion within America. And it's it's hard for people to uh, be brought back to that time. Um, in in parallel to working you know, working on, on the case with Paul and getting to know the, the witness and then, you know, getting to know Sabrina. In addition, I, I realized that, you know, I, I was born in France. I lived through part of, you know, World War II. I mean, I, I was born in 1939. And by, by, by the time I was three or four, I, I, I understood what was going on. And, um, I, I was lucky not to be directly exposed to violence, to, to the war, but I was exposed to destruction. I was exposed to, you know, armies moving through and so on. I, I remember that, you know, vividly. So I could reconstruct something of what, what they went through, but um, I had no idea about the war in Japan. In fact, I think that People today have no idea about what the end of World War II really was on, on the Japanese side. I, you know, after 50 years, a lot of the records became available, uh, including the Japanese records that were translated and studied by several brilliant historians, worked on those records for years. And those books have come out only in the last three or four years. And I've been buying them one after the other to plunge into that area and to understand the, the, the context. And, you know, we, we could have a show of two hours just above the end of the war in the Pacific and the end of the war with Japan. It did not happen the way you were taught in class. And what happened in New Mexico was not an atomic test. I mean, it was a test, okay? But in when you do a test in science, you you mix, you know, a few chemicals in a in a vial, and then you, uh, you you heat it up, or you do some experiment, you demonstrate a certain principle, and then you hopefully you get a patent for something that is going to be to be useful to people. Uh, this was not what what they did. They blew up a bomb, which is the equivalent of the bomb that destroyed Nagasaki. Okay, it was you know nearly uh, the megatonnage uh, was uh, or the kilotonnage was between seventeen and twenty kilotons. Well, the Nagasaki bomb was eighteen kilotons, and it you know destroyed the city. Um, they didn't have, to their defense, they didn't have, number one, they couldn't do a little test. 
you cannot do a little test of, you know, of, of a nuclear bomb. It had, either it works or it doesn't. And uh, they had, they didn't know if it would work. Many scientists thought it would not work. Many of the military thought it would not work because there had never been something like that before. Um, it, in terms of physics, it's absolutely heroic. Uh, what the combination of things they managed to do to make it work. They also didn't know how large an explosion it was going to be. There were a number of things that they could only realize after the fact. They, to their credit, um, well, they can be accused of having done this experiment without evacuating the people. I mean, there were thousands of people within 30 miles, 40, 50 miles of the explosion who were exposed. There was a, the, the plume went up to the top of the atmosphere. It was four times larger than all the calculations they had done. And then the, the, the wind blew that plume towards uh, the you know, inhabited area, including the Padilla Ranch. So they were fully within the track of the plume, which contained unburned plutonium. So they, they, they did not burn up all the plutonium uh, in this first, quote, experiment. Um, so it- Very radioactive, right? Yes, it, it yeah. remained radioactive, you know, fell into water of the pond, the pools, the reservoirs, the cisterns and so on. So, and they never, they never told anybody. And, you know, that is, you know, to their credit, they readjusted the bombs for Japan so that they would uh, explode at 2,000 feet altitude to minimize the radioactivity on the ground. And the Japanese never knew that, okay? Hmm. They may still not know that now. I mean, those are little technical things that you find in fairly obscure little brochures that I've been collecting here and there because I was fascinated. I mean, what were they thinking they had done, you know, and how did they, and this, this idea of re, you know, re-keying, the first bomb blew up at ground level. So it, it just, it was, it was the worst possible situation. It was four times more powerful than they thought it was. So let's not talk about an atomic test anymore, okay? Um, but they did try to minimize the radioactive impact on Japan. You know, one of the things that, that uh, Jason is curious about, uh, Jacques, is that these kids were more mature for their age. And Jason, I will tell you, I mean, you read the book, you knew that, that Jose's mother was blinded when she opened the door at 4.45 in the morning. And, you know, she, she said it was like the light of a thousand suns. <clears throat> and, and Jose had uh, his eardrum. Uh, I mean, he can, on that side, he can't hear. And they were both, they were <clears throat> both blinded, except he got his vision back and she did not. Is that correct? No, well, no, he never talked to, he talked to us about the eardrum because he can't oh, gotcha. hear. But she, she was blinded only in one eye, but it doesn't matter. I mean, nobody told him what was happening. And then Remy, the same, his bed went from one side to the other of the room. However, Jacques, I think Jason was, you know, the, the testimony of these kids, even they were nine and seven, 
is a very sophisticated testimony. And I think that, that you wanted Jacques to talk a little bit about why they were excellent witnesses, right? Yeah, what makes an excellent witness, Jacques? Well, the um, kids, you know, grew up quickly. They were in a very intense um, atmosphere of, um, you know, news about the war all the time, and they were surrounded with military things and so on. You you did your duty, and I think in, in the book we quote uh, Remy Baca talking about exactly that, uh, because uh, Paola had asked him about that. He said, you, you, you know, you, you had a work to do that was important, and you did it. I mean, this was not play, this was not... Uh, they they were in charge of at nine-year-old you can be in charge of cattle. I mean, they right. you know they are shepherds. You know, here in France, well, you know, kids nine-year-old will you'll see them guiding you know a herd of of, of cows or you know a, or a group of sheep and so on, and they they can take care of it. They know what to do. So they. Um, they knew their that environment. They knew where they were. They knew what their duties were. They were quite capable of taking care of the of the fences, of taking care of the cattle. When when the calf was born, they they understood the process. I mean, there was no mystery there. And uh, they uh, they they knew. You know, the the branding of cattle was, of course, is a, a, a tradition. You know, in the southwest, uh, it was important for the for newborn calf to be branded, so it wouldn't be stolen uh, by somebody passing passing through. Um, they they knew all that. They were mature. They uh, the nine year old could drive the truck. Well, the nine year old can drive a truck. Um, the what's different here though is that Jose Padilla has an, an aesthetic memory. He has, he can visualize, he can bring back situations. We've seen him do that. And the transcripts, I think, bear, you know, witness to that. He will say, Paola will say, you know, when when did you first see that? And and he would say it's in, you know, uh, 1955, uh, 1956, 1957, 19 January, 1957. I, I can't do that. No way. I can't tell you what I had for dinner last night. So, yeah. No, uh, this, this guy can tell you. He's got a photographic memory. And, and Jacques and I were in shock because he, he remembers every detail and because we were with him for four years Jacques can tell you he doesn't change his story no. and and it was wonderful for me coming in from you know a cold into the story and having the recorded testimony of both of the witnesses now that's something I've looked at in terms of computer communication and computer conferencing and so on We've done extensive analysis of transcripts of people um, talking together or separately under different electronic you know, media, uh, television, telephone, computers, and so on, uh, in the very early days of uh, the internet, 
where I was in charge of some, some of the research on the ARPANET, even before the internet. And we, we looked at communication through computers. We were one of the very first teams that developed that kind of software. And um, so I, I, I knew how you analyze transcripts. There are slight differences in words they use to describe situations, but essentially, I mean, there is no question they're both telling the truth as they saw it from their point of view at the time. And this gives right. us a very rich uh, background from which to reconstruct the, the, the whole story, to reconstruct what, what really happened. The, uh, the story in of itself for the listener, if you haven't um, read the book yet, and I suggest you go get the book because this puts Roswell in number two spot, if not number three spot, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is that these two little boys had witnessed uh, a craft after a thunderstorm, I believe, right, yes. um, that was taking place. They heard a, a, a boom and then saw smoke and then approached this craft. And as they approached this craft, they saw three entities in the inside of the craft that looked or appeared to be injured. And they were squealing slash crying the way a jackrabbit, I think, is the way Jose explains it. Yes. Uh, and it, they seem hurt. And the oldest of the two, uh, Jose, wanted to go and help them, while the youngest one, Remy, did not. He was afraid. Um, he later on described these things looking almost like praying mantises, um, almost looking long arms, black eyes, big heads, uh, your typical gray, almost the way that, you know, people almost describe them. That's almost what they saw. And uh, when they came back the following day, of course, the entities were gone, but the craft was still there. Uh, that in of itself is a big detail because that means that there was some sort of uh, extraction that took place that night or, you know, while the kids were gone, these things were picked up because they weren't there when they came back the next day. And I'm almost wondering if it's the same entities that came back and asked for the treasure later on, as is described. <laughs> I wonder if it's the same ones or if they send another group. But uh, yeah, that one freaked me out. Uh, it was, uh, uh, anyways, the, the, the entities come back later on in the story. So you have to read the book to know what I'm talking about. But um, the kids ended up witnessing the military uh, extract this craft, which was not an easy process to do. Uh, there was a lot of things that needed to be done. A gate needed to be uh, taken down. They rebuilt a gate, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, they had to build uh, or bring in an 18-wheeler, so they had to really um, make the land uh, be able to accommodate such an extraction. And the kids witnessed all of this over the period of a week. They just watched these military... Were there every and, day, except the second day. The second, the second day is when the, uh, you know, the three entities or the three humanoids uh, disappear. Um, they were not, not there when they got there the third day. The, what we know, and so people could say it's a valid, um, uh, you know, uh, question. You have two young kids who tell you this story, uh, how do you know it happened? Well, I mean, they were telling what they experienced, uh, but how do you know that there wasn't something else? How do you know that this is the truth all the way over? Well, um, there, there were 
there were two, there were three ways that we can validate the, the whole thing. First, uh, there was at the very beginning, I mean, when it was happening, you know, the object took the tower out of commission. Well, that tower was one of three communication towers guiding aircraft, both civilian and military, around ground zero. Okay. Right. So it was it was important to the security of white sands. So um, they they asked a, a bomber that was on a training mission coming in for a landing at Alamogordo if he could look at the tower and see what was going on. We know the name of that pilot. We know his son. Um, his son communicated with Paola. Um, his father had told him the story. Of, uh, of when he was vectored to, to look at the, at the tower and that he saw a fire. He saw something that was on the ground that looked unusual. And of course, people think of an aircraft that was, you know, that, that crashed or had, had some sort of accident. And then he saw these two little kids and he reported all that to Alamogordo. So we have, that correlation. He may be the, the officer who came back the next day. There was nobody else who was assigned to that yet. Later, the army assigned somebody, but um, this pilot was part of the Army Air Force, and um, he's probably the one who came back, cleaned up the area, um, hid the object under some bushes that he tore up and put around to preserve it from curiosity seekers, although the spot is so isolated that there would be very little chance anybody would have come across it. And then may have captured the three entities, unless the three entities left by themselves and were the ones that showed up later, you know, in another circumstance when they were apparently looking for the, the treasure. Um, so we don't, we have no way of knowing that, um, other than trying to find some correlation around what the pilots were talking about, but that's, it's a long, long time ago. The, the other correlation we have is, um, of course, the third witness that Paola found who could reconstruct, she came after that, so a, a couple of, you know, a few years after the event, but she can testify to the stories she heard and uh, what the landscape looked like after all this, and then all the, the, the different types of objects that had survived, that had been extracted from the site, that she handled. So we have the continuity across all of that with a way to you know, to lock it down at both ends. So the, the, the entire thing. The, the other thing we have is that, um, of course, the kids reported this immediately to their father, who said, well, you know, this is, again, um, this is wartime, the, the war is finished, but, you know, people are still in uniform. There are a lot of questions that haven't been answered. Let's be careful with that. So he called the state police and went to see what the kids were talking about with the policeman. 
and they found the object guided by the kids and then they went inside. Okay, so here we have two adults, including the father and the state policeman testifying to the fact, yes, there was something. It wasn't a weather balloon. It was how exactly how the, the kids are describing yeah. it. So we can nail that story down at several points and it, it holds together from beginning to end. Yeah, because what kind of weather balloon would need an 18-wheeler? Like, how heavy of a weather balloon would that be? To yeah, well, it was an experimental um, weather balloon. It was a experimental fly. weather balloon with things yeah. nailed to the inside of it, as, as we found out later. Do you know one detail that um, I, I don't often hear from people that have been inside of crafts or have been near crafts is smell. I'm always curious about the smell. What do you smell? Like the, the inside of the craft, you never hear those details. I, I've and asked that question is... and I, I didn't get uh, answers. They, I've asked that question about crash sites where there were bodies and I, I'm, I have yet to get a clear answer about whether the, those cadavers smelled like cadavers. I mean, you know, I work right. with doctors. Doctors ask that kind of question. So we were talking about um, uh, how uh, Jose and, and Remy basically uh, had witnessed the military come um, back and forth throughout the week uh, and, and seeing them just basically. And the way that they described it, it's almost like the military men were there begrudgingly. Like they looked like they'd. Well, you know, we know their, their behavior pretty well. And I think. Um... The kids uh, certainly discussing it uh, with uh, Mr. Padilla. Uh, it was pretty clear. I mean, they were they were kids. Uh, they were you know uh, 18, 19, 20 year old, and this was uh, maybe entertaining at the beginning. But uh, after a while, you know, it was uh, was work in the middle of nowhere, trying to recover something. They have they had very little interest about. You know what it was. They were they were listening to. He describes them as you know they pitched a tent. Uh, they were there. You know they was guarding the the object. You know regularly, but they were listening to radio. They were listening to songs on the radio and so on. And then periodically they would go to lunch or dinner. You know at the uh, at the local bar and and cafe. And that was. Um, you know that was their routine, and uh, they they were eager to be demobilized. Uh, you know the war was over, but it would take a little while for all the people in uniform to be sent back to their to their families for the records to be uh, cleaned up and everything else. So uh, they, um, you know, so they were they were sort of on vacation. Uh, to to them, this was just. You know, passing the time until they could go home, frankly, and going to the cafe was entertaining because they could they could talk to the waitresses and so on, and you know listen listen to music. I mean, they were kids. Socialize, yeah. Have yeah. a beer, maybe have a, a game of basketball in the in the back lot, and, and that was it. You know, which is completely normal. They were they had no curiosity, but at the same time. This was not the scene you would find in 
you know, in uh, Spielberg movies and so on with uh, people in space, you know, special suits and respirators and helicopters and, smoke for no reason. and yeah. security and all of that. And yeah. doctors <laughs> testing them regularly and so on. There was none of that. It was, uh, uh, you know, just they were out in the desert in uniform trying to clean up this thing. And then they were occasionally lazy. Like we know that they didn't pick up every little piece of material that was uh, in the bushes, you know, and uh, frankly, they couldn't have because now we should be clear because there, there was material that was, you know, that had sort of, you know, literally exploded out, but that was only one panel. The rest of the object was like an an egg shaped, you know, they called it an avocado because one, one end was pointed and there was a little transparent dome on top. Perfect. Don't know. If, yes. Yeah. Kind of. Yes. I kind of did a quick drawing of what I was visualizing yes. from uh, uh, from the book. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, it was as a piece of um, you know aerospace hardware. It was extraordinarily clever because number one, it was very solid. It was. Uh, it had not been damaged, other than that one panel, um, in the collision and in. Uh, shoveling dirt all the way down the length of a football field all the way to where it stopped and making a turn apparently under power. So this thing was a sophisticated vehicle. Uh, it was the size of, you know, to compare it to something, everybody has seen a Ford, you know, 150 truck. Uh, you put two of those things together and you get approximately the volume and the weight of what that thing was. You know, you, you, you take two of those trucks side by side, that's, that's about the volume that you're dealing with and the weight you're dealing with, okay? So this was a significant machine. And uh, inside was much taller than would a Ford 150 or Ford 100 would be. It was, uh, you know, much taller than the kids were. And the floor was flat because I went through all those questions uh, with uh, Jose. Um, the, the floor was flat, so there was space under the floor. And I wanted to know, you know, what could be under the floor because we, we haven't seen any propulsion to this thing. There are obviously no propellers, there are no jets, there is no opening. Even under the object, there is no opening. So where is the motor? There is a motor. I mean, how does it work? And um, on the last day when it was loaded on the truck, it was loaded on the side because otherwise it couldn't go under the overpass, which gives you an idea of how big the thing was. So right. they had to, that's why they needed the crane to lift it on the, on the low boy and loaded sideways. Uh, so the kids could see the underside and they were, again, they were looking for an opening or something and there was no opening. There were some bumps on the underside, which by the way, had not been damaged by this craft, you know, plowing down the hillside all the way down. Okay, 
So there's no damages to no the, damage. the craft it and of itself? Crashed. But that was, you know, I mean, an airplane would have exploded. Right. Broken up. Uh, the, um, so if there was a, what we think of as a, quote, propulsion system, it was housed in about two or three, maybe two and a half feet under the floor. And um, it worked by some principle we don't understand. This also they found a bunch of uh, what they described like angel hair, which were like almost like fiber optics. They found tons so of this they, stuff. The the witnesses uh, recovered a number of things from the place where the object had hit the tower, which is probably where one of the panels that the kids call the door in the transcript. Because otherwise there is no door. I mean, how do you get inside this thing? So one of these panels had exploded, and it, it had spewed out a lot of fiber that was uh, that they compared to fiber optic. But nobody talked about fiber optics in those days. So it's a later interpretation. They uh, called it angel hair because people were familiar with angel hair for decoration of Christmas trees and that kind of thing. So they um, they gathered as much of that as they could and they, you know, amusingly gave it to their neighbors for Christmas as Christmas decoration. But it wasn't a fiber. It was yeah. really a bundle of, of fiber. Alien technology. Things, <laughs> but it was in a bundle. And uh, it had some strange light, you know, light properties that, frankly, you know, I don't understand. Fiber optic doesn't glow, <laughs> you know, different, you yeah. know, blue and red and, you know, all along the fiber. I mean, it doesn't do that. Um, and so it's not. And by the way, fiber optic had already been invented. I mean, people had, had known for a long time that if you put a light, at one end of a glass fiber, you can you can recover the light at the other end. Right. Uh, it was done in art, uh, in sort of bouquet of glass fibers, where you just put a candle under the the bouquet of of these fibers, and you'd have all these little points of light. People did that. You know, it wasn't electronics. It was just driving the light down the fiber. People knew how to work with glass, you know, centuries before. So that was not yeah. new. What was new was, you know, the way it seemed to glow, and it continued to glow after it was recovered, which was very strange and still is very strange. The fact that people used it as Christmas decorations to, you know, decorate their Christmas tree. Like they had no idea what this stuff was. It's like, it could have been alien technology. <laughs> You're just decorating your Christmas tree with it. Like that blows my mind. What else would you do? <laughs> yeah. What else would you do with it? I guess. Yeah. They uh, Was it like a burlap sack full that they've got a worth yeah, of this so stuff? Yeah. They had a big sack that they used to carry, I don't know, potatoes or other things. And they just, they had, uh, I think 30 pounds or 50 pounds of that stuff. So we get to the good part of the book, which is when Jose and Remy decide they want to take a treasure. So they see this thing mounted on the back of the uh, the trailer. 
Um, and then the army men decide, hey, let's go back down to the owl for another drink. And they leave everything unattended. And of course, that's when they decide to make their move. Do you want to talk about that little section oh. there? Yes. Um, the the two adults who went inside on the third day did not describe what they saw, uh, if anything. Right. They uh, the kids could see them inside when they were inside from a distance. Um, they didn't come out carrying anything. When the, the, the kids, actually, Jose is the one who went in, there was still light at that, at that point. This was on the last day. The thing is in the trailer. The Obviously, that, that opening is there. It's oriented to the setting sun. So there's still some sun, you know, filtering inside and lighting up the inside. So he sees... Uh, two things. He sees a panel affixed to the wall of the object, and the the, the panel has a, a a circle. It's about three feet by a little bit more than two feet, I think, and it has this this uh, circle which looks like copper. And then in the middle, there is this thing that turns, and it's it's a bracket of some sort. And um, Jose thinks that he should get a souvenir. Now, again, reading this now, you will think, you know, why, what would he use that term, which is a French word of a souvenir, which is not exactly in his, you know, Hispanic, Anglo-Hispanic vocabulary for a nine-year-old in the middle of New Mexico, but the, so I asked him, and he said, well, in those days, you know, many people in our families wouldn't come back from the war. And it was important to have something to remember them by. And we called that a souvenir. You wanted to have, you know, either, you know, uh, something that they had written or some object that they, that they like a watch or something. That, and that was the souvenir you had from an uncle who had been killed in Germany or in Japan or somewhere. So souvenirs, that was a word that meant something very specific for them, that if in an exceptional time, you, you had to be able to bring back that memory. So right. they, and it's a very appropriate word. So they wanted to absolutely have a souvenir and they, he took, he sent Remy to go get uh, what they call the cheater bar, which is a, essentially a lever that was on the truck and um, for tightening, tightening up the, you know, the, the, the straps and yeah, the, the fabric or the, the ropes around a, a load. And he used that to pry out that moving bracket. There was, it was just held by a pin the pin fell off. He took the bracket. He ran away. So we we have the bracket, and you would hope that the bracket would levitate or you know do, do something <laughs> exotic that we could yeah. take to Stanford or MIT. Uh, it doesn't do that. It looks very ordinary, 
It's made of, we know, um, the, it had been tested before, and it's mentioned in, um, in at least one book. And uh, it's, it's an aluminum alloy that was used around that time. It's, um, it has appendages uh, that are consistent with the kind of bracket you'd use in, in the windmill as an actuator to move other things. So there are holes where you could put a hook and you could put a, you know, a, a rod that would act, activate, you know, or actuate some other mechanism. So um, we thought, well, maybe it was something that, certainly my first idea, which is still one of my favorite explanations for lack of anything else, is, you know, the soldiers did that. The soldiers brought that in. That would be a convenient thing to, you know, to keep a, a cord, an electric cord, you know, wrapped around so that you could, you could have light at night if you wanted to and so on inside that object. Or you could have some, uh, some tool, some electric tool that you want to use inside the object. You could um, you could use that to, to wrap wrap it around and hold it against the wall. Um, I have friends who have looked at the. Obviously, I'm not you know the expert on this kind of thing, so I've, I've called in people with technology expertise who know that history, um, and uh, they think that it may have had, in fact some function that was a function of the craft. So we are arguing about that and I don't know, uh, I don't know who is right. It looks very crude to me. The alloy is a known alloy of that time. It's called silumin, which uh, has been tracked down by other people before us. So we need to you know, give them credit for that. They did a good job of identifying the, the alloy. It's an alloy of aluminum. Uh, you don't use uh, in something that will be exposed to strong forces, like again in a mill, uh, you don't want to use aluminum because it's too brittle. So you alloy it with something else to make it stronger. So, uh, and there are a variety of those alloys and they have numbers. We know the number for this one. So there is no right. mystery about what it's made of. The question is, what was it doing inside this extraordinary vehicle? And that's one thing that Jose was mentioning, that he's trying to recreate that pin for you, the one that fell out yes. of when uh, he busted it, right? Yes. Yeah, ho hopefully he's able to give that to you, because that, that would be a big a big piece as to maybe what the use of it was for anyways. Yes. Uh, we'd like to have the, the panel itself i mean it, but it, the panel itself would have been awesome coincidence with the nuclear bombs and these crashes so we got roswell we got this one and then not that long afterwards i mean probably what 14 years you had the socorro uh, incident with the police officer it's th there's definitely a connection between the nuclear facilities nuclear bombs that we have and these crashes like we we know two crashes within the area would go one step further. I, I would go one step further and say, 
this is like if you if you're looking for a response of a very something else somewhere, then it you know the the, the explosion at ground zero is a turning point in human history. Human history goes back, you know, uh, half a billion years. It's documented for maybe 10,000 years before Christ. And it ends, that one part of history ends at ground zero, you know, in July 1945. And then what happens? This thing comes out of nowhere, hits this tower, crashes under power, um, manages to make a controlled landing. It's not a crash, it's really a controlled crash landing. The, the occupants are alive. The craft is barely damaged. And this happens within 20 miles of ground zero. And it happens two days after the capitulation of Japan. Is this a random thing that just happened? Yeah. I mean, come on. This is, this is like underlining history so that we don't miss it. Now, the question is, we know why the kids never spoke. The kids never spoke because they were told, you never talk about what you see, you know, about the war, anything after the war, anything the scientists did, you don't talk about it. And there were dire consequences if you did, uh, that they could see in their environment, you know, people getting drunk and talking about, you know, what they had seen at Alamogordo or whatever. You just didn't do that. So they, they got it. And then the other reason is that, you know, arguably they had taken something that, um, you know, the military kept looking for. Right. I mean, the military came back thinking that maybe something had dropped out of a truck, you know, and they were looking for it and they asked questions about it. So they were not about to talk about that. And they went their separate ways. They kind of forgot about the whole thing. Uh, they sort of knew where it was, but they, they lost interest. You know, their lives took different turns. Uh, they were not connected anymore. They got reconnected much later, I mean, fairly recently, by a, an, an internet search for, um, you oh, know, yeah. heredity and, and, and so on, and, and uh, reconstructing their family history which put them into contact again. But so we understand why they, you know, witnesses don't always talk and don't always brag about what they've seen, contrary to what the skeptics think and so on. Uh, not only did they not make up a story, but they didn't even tell the true story. Now, what about the government? Because you know, where was this thing taken? Well, it was taken back to ground zero. Um, the scientists never spoke about it. Oppenheimer never spoke about it. Enrico Fermi is not, it's not in any of his, I don't know, the memoirs that his wife wrote or anything else. We don't find any trace of it. And then we don't find any trace in the military records. Uh, I know, you know, I've reconstructed 
the database of the Air Force reports of Blue, Blue Book, which we had when I was working with right. Dr. Heineck. We had all the records. And in 1945, as I, I said in the book, there were four cases known that made it into the Blue Book archives from 1945. And this thing is not in, it's not anywhere. And in discussing, you know, UFOs with Dr. Heineck and other people, uh, including the, uh, uh, Captain Major Quintanilla, this never came up in any of the discussions. We would talk about Roswell, we'd talk about other crashes, you know, fairly regularly. This never happened. So the question is, where would it have gone? Well, in the US, there are three different systems of clearances. There are the foreign clearances that don't go to the president for obvious reason, because there's, you know, there's, it's, uh, it's very complex. It's handled at the level of the State Department. The Secretary of State is in charge of filtering that intelligence. And if there is something significant at that level, then it's reported to the president on that basis, uh, on a decision of the Secretary of State. Then there are the, the, the classic classifications, um, you know, secret, uh, uh, top secret, confidential, and so on, and then above top secret. That is uh, the DOD, primarily, because it handles, you know, war, weapons, secrets, and so on. Uh, and then the other branches of the government. And then there is a third level, which contains the P, Q, and R clearances uh, that belong to uh, the Department of Energy. And those were, and I'm reading a very interesting book now, on The Atomic Secrets from a, a historian. It was just published about the atomic secrets. And at the end of the war, and again, I never thought about that. At the end of the war, the question was, should we open up the, the atomic secrets had been revealed at Hiroshima? Right. I mean, the big atomic secret is you can make an atom <laughs> yeah, bomb and it will work. Okay, so yeah. let me a hydrogen bomb, okay? We know the hydrogen bomb works because it's hard to hide a hydrogen bomb when you blow it up. Okay. So those things are known. So, uh, and there was a big potential for atomic physics to serve all kinds of civilian purposes in, in medicine, especially where people were eager to use it. And also, as we know, in, right. in generating electricity. So they, the uh, the scientists at Alamogordo and and um, uh, especially at Los Alamos argued about that, and they uh, started a society, an open society for atomic physics, and they went back to Chicago and other places to teach it to a new generation of physicists who would develop the civilian applications. Now, the, the, what about the bomb? I mean. What about the things that derive from the bomb that, you know, should we keep it secret? There was a discussion about sitting down with the Russians 
and opening up all of that. You know, that that has been done uh, in, in other situations. And, and the, I always wondered why the transistor, the invention of the transistor could have been classified. And think of what the US, how far the US would be ahead of everybody else if the transistor had never been revealed, you know, except as encapsulated in, you know, electronic chips and everything else. The, there was a conscious decision to um, not to classify the transistor when it was invented. But that was a conscious decision. It didn't just happen like that. I mean, the, the decision was made because uh, having the transistor would enable American industry to flourish right. all over the world in the commercial way, in, in ways that were way over the advantage of classifying it for a few hundred, you know, esoteric physicists somewhere in some, some cave. So the decision was made not to classify the transistor. That's why we have television. That's why we have these computers. That's why we have everything else. Okay. And, and it was, you know, turned out to have been a great decision when you look at, you know, the richness of company after company after company that was produced based on the transistor by America. Why didn't we do that? The same thing with nuclear physics? Well, because, you know, the danger of nuclear physics uh, getting out of hand. Uh, so the some of it was controlled into nuclear plants uh, and uh, radioisotopes for medicine, everything else. But um, the rest of it remains classified. And that's where the thing is. And we know that because when um, the, 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 the Pentagon wanted to share a piece of a UFO in the 50s with the Canadian project, they approached the head of the Canadian project um, who, uh, and he was told that the subject of UFO recovered materials was classified higher than the atom bomb. That's crazy. And he wrote about that. Well, he, he discusses that in one of his books. I mean, he, and uh, I've, I've looked at that book and I quote it in the, he, you know, thought that that might be appropriate. And I cannot, I don't know where I stand, sir. I, um, yes, I, I mean, I'm fascinated with UFOs. I'd like to know, you know, <laughs> where that thing went. <laughs> I'd like to see it. I'd like to touch it, just like Jose Padilla touched it. Uh, but um, there may be other things that um, would make it difficult at this stage in humanity's history to master the consequences. And I don't know, you know, I'm not privy to those records. I'm not privy to that. And it's not for me to say, yeah, disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. I, I can't, honestly, I can't say that. I think that my, my feeling about it, knowing what I do know, uh, including what I learned from 
Jose Padilla and from Paola, uh, my feeling about it is that it, sh it should not be kept by a few high priests in some cave with clearances, you know, over, over top secret, because there is nothing up to the top secret level. There's nothing about that. Um, it has to be above top secret. And yes, I respect those men and women, but um, what they do is, is very difficult. It's very difficult to do good science at that level where right. things are completely compartment, compartmented. And um, we have the experience you know, that I live through of building the internet. I mean, I was there. I was one of a team of principal investigators. There have been several teams, maybe up to 10 teams at the same time, working on building the internet. And we did it, okay? We, we developed, first they developed their hardware, and then people like me with a few other people came in, developed some of the software that inspired the other levels of software that we use now for, right. you know, Facebook. So I, I know that history, I've lived through that whole history from the very early machines on the ARPANET. And we could do the same thing with UFOs. I mean, you know, don't tell me it's a $22 yeah. million dollar project, okay? It's billions of dollars. It, it has to involve many sciences. It has to have been secret, as, as they said on the record. You know, this is more secret than the atom bomb. And the atom bomb, you don't get to work on the atom bomb, the next level, whatever it is, by just being a bright yeah. kid who knows science. I mean, you, you, you know, it, it takes a lot more than that. And the question is, are we now at the point where it should be turned over to open teams of scientists who could look at it, not in one big thing, but in a sequence of things. There is too much to learn just about the history of UFOs. I right. mean, just about the open history. Now that UFOs are mainstream you know, yeah. on TV, you have you have you know people on you know calling experts, having panels of experts, and the experts are saying, "How come it's UFOs are only seen in, in the U.S.? How yeah, come yeah. there are no UFOs in France? You know, how come there are people don't see UFOs in Russia? Well, come on! I mean, you you want to you know where where, where have you been? You know." Uh, and I, I think we're, we're at a sort of a, no, watershed point where a lot of history is going to be just eliminated and people are going to reinvent all that stuff. And, uh, you know, good luck because this is not yeah. just about the Nimitz. You know, this is the Nimitz was this just a lot deeper. Yeah, Nimitz was just a, a recent deeper. thing. This has been, and you've been researching it longer than anybody. So, well, not not quite, but uh, you know, I've tried to document things along the way, and uh, we are at a watershed point, and it should be handled not just by you know gnomes in the in the basement with super 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 right. classification you know currencies, but uh, by you know maybe a group of knowledgeable, intelligent people who can talk about. The social aspect, the historical aspects, the and what it means for science. I mean, we have to 
to some areas. All from, from ground scratch. zero. Um, and in closing, sir, as for an investigator for myself, has only been active for about one year, and all the new investigators that are out there, that the new generation, what advice would you give us about investigating this? Like what, you know, because there's a lot of egos in this field, unfortunately, and I've talked about that a bit with Powellette, that there's a lot of, I use the term ufologist loosely, but what, what advice would you give us uh, to keep our heads above water? <laughs> Well, that's understandable. I mean, it's human nature. Um, and every group that has tried to get organized around that uh, has has gone through through that. You know, the, whether that's NICAP, APRO, MUFARM, and, and, and so on. Um, that's normal. Um, I think people need to realize that the problem is much bigger than any one of us or bigger than what what we know, uh, you know, I, I worked for a number of years with one man who was arguably the instigator of the internet, uh, a man named Paul Barron, who invented packet switching when he was at the Rand Corporation, which is another thing that was never classified by the military. It was invented for the Air Force, uh, but it was open immediately and universities immediately took it over and he's not very few people know of him he's recognized of course in in technology but he's not well known the way other people have become stars of the internet you know rightly or wrongly but um he always said look i was part of a team and i brought one stone to the cathedral now, he happened to have brought the, the first stone to the cathedral. But the fact is that he probably wouldn't, wouldn't have built the rest of it, you know, the, the same way. It takes, you know, it takes a few hundred people to build something like the Internet over 20 years. So uh, the uh, but that's that's the way I feel that each one of us can has, a, you know, one stone we can bring. And. Um, Thanks to Paola, I mean, this case deserved an entire book. Uh, we're very lucky to have uh, Mr. Padilla and his right. memory, which is intact, and he's willing to work with us and argue with us. And we've argued about a number of things, you know, uh, about the, the, the bracket and so on. I thought it was something <laughs> from the windmill, frankly. And, he showed me no. He taught me about windmills. Hey, no, what do I know about windmills? And it's, uh, so I agree, it's not that I had to um, defer to him on on the number of things. Uh, and he was there, and we're very lucky that he was there. We're very lucky that Paola picked up the story. The Trinity, the best kept secret, is a book that is available on Amazon. It's doing very well. Uh, from what I hear and from the reviews, and now you are translating it in French as well. Uh, are, are you done doing that, sir? Or are you still in the process? As of today, I am done. I, I want to go through the whole text again, but it, uh, you know, it, it will be on on Amazon within a week in French. It's already there in Italian, so we have three. Uh, that's the beauty of working with Amazon, as you know, as our He's not really our publisher, but our distributor. 
uh, it's extraordinarily yeah, flexible. Yeah, it's very fast. Fast. Well, I thank you very much, Jacques, yes. for your time on UAP studies. Uh, it has been an honor by thank far. <laughs> well, as you can tell, I'm excited about it. It's just the beginning, and we still have a lot to learn, you know, about this particular case, about <laughs> this particular bracket, and also, you know, yeah. about World War II. And, and the implications the books, that it, it you know. still has, that still resonates today. You know, it's a war that affected, it's still affecting us today, well, you know. I'm in touch with a Japanese scholar who wants to translate the book, lives in Tokyo, has translated two of my books before, and he, is, he says it's going to take him a while to recover from what he learned there about the history of Japan at the end of the, at the end of the war, because those things are not generally known. I mean, they come from records that have only been opened for a few years, and only historians have had access to them. 